Hello, welcome to the Cities on the Frontline Urban Exchange Podcast. I'm Lauren Sorkin, Executive Director of the Resilient Cities Network. Together with Smart Cities World, we've created this space for city leaders and urban practitioners to share the opportunities and challenges they are grappling with as they drive transformative change in cities today. I would like to thank our sponsor, the World Bank, and you for joining us on the Urban Exchange Podcast, the premier urban resilience podcast taking us around the world to meet people working on the front line. I will now hand you over to our host for this episode. Welcome to our new episode on the Urban Exchange podcast. In this episode, we're sponsored by the Future Ready Cities program, a partnership between Visa and the Resilient Cities Network. I'm Paul Wilson, Chief Business Officer at Connected Places Catapult and Chair of the Smart Cities World Advisory Board. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Augustin Botterton, author of a new Visa Point of View report on government disbursements, and also the former Chief Resilience Officer of Santa Fe, and by Robert L. Matthews, Director of the Washington, D.C. Child and Family Services Agency. Thanks for joining me. It's great to have you with us. We're going to be talking about how technology is changing and digitizing the world of government disbursements to enhance urban resilience. And I want to start with you, Augustine. Could you tell me about your experience as a city practitioner? What are the local government support programs critical to urban resilience and inclusion? And is that related to government disbursements? Okay, thank you, Paul, for having me here. So, as you said, I was uh, I was the chief resilience officer in Santa Fe City, sometimes some years ago, and I had the chance to experience different type of programs we were running under the city resilience program and office. Let me start with saying that you know cities are where people people live. You know, most of the population, and and that it's even something that you can see more in in emerging countries or emerging regions such as Latin America, where I am based, that people live in urban areas. And in urban areas is, is where happens, you know, all the things. People come to, to cities for finding better ways of living, for finding jobs, for entertainment and the like. But also when people start living in cities, the problems arise. Congestion, a lack of affordable housing, uh, traffic jams, unemployment, etc. So cities are the ones who have all the issues in the corner, you know, and they have to, to act. So whatever they can do in order to uh, help to decrease all those issues that I was just mentioning is helpful. And supporting, I think, local, local support is something that cities are starting to do more often, you know, in general, support programs, not particularly money or, or disbursement. Cities, for some reasons, they have to find a way to provide that support because there was a gap. And now there are new gaps uh, all the time because of evolution of, of, as humanity. So I think that local support is crucial. Uh, it's necessary. But of course, there are challenges uh, around that. And if I have to summarize, I would say that the challenges go around capacity. It's not the same 
small cities into uh, secondary cities or larger cities. And of course, uh, funding. I would say th- those are the, the two main uh, cr- critical uh, barriers. So in a minute, we'll get on to the report that you've written. And as you say, capacity and funding are the two big challenges. And COVID obviously changed the way that this all worked. Could you tell us a little bit about the report you've written? Give us the headlines of how are cities managing with increasingly digital disbursement of funds? We found more uh, examples at uh, subnational levels, not necessarily cities, you know, national levels, of course, and subnational levels. But cities are where the beneficiaries live. So cities are partners, always. Cities are partners in, in all the digital disbursement programs all over the world. Necessary partners, and they can be more or less uh, involved in the process. What we found is that the digital disbursement programs are processes, that there are different phases. And the payment is one of the parts of the process. But you have other parts in this process, you know, like finding the potential beneficiaries, reaching out to beneficiaries, and then actually screening and see if those potential beneficiaries have to be actual real beneficiaries. And then, of course, the process of moving the money to the beneficiary. And that's where Robert maybe can tell more a little bit of how, how they get the, the money because there are different options to that. So these are the, um, the processes that we found. And we, we could somehow allocate different experiences to all those different processes. So I would say that the report or the POV we came up with is about resilience, it's about uh, digital disbursement, but as a, as a comprehensive and larger process, not only the, the, the payment. I don't know if, if that makes sense. Yeah, the payment is obviously extremely important. Identity is quite a challenge, isn't it? Making sure it's going to the right place. Let's bring in Robert L. Matthews. Who, Robert, great to have you with us. Tell us who you are and, and what you do, and a little bit about how you've been managing some of this in Washington. Sure. Thank you, Paul, for in the invitation. And so I'm Robert L. Matthews. I'm the director for the District of Columbia's Child and Family Service Agency. And so with that, what that means is that this is the agency for Washington, D.C. that oversees the child protection services for the district, as well as when children are separated from their parents, the foster care system and aspect of the work. Um, In terms of this space, in terms of when we're thinking about the digitized disbursement of funds, um, Washington, D.C. has quite a history of being innovative in providing funds to families who are in need of support. And the way that that's determined is based on a number of factors. You think about how many individuals live within a household, how many are adults, how many are children. Um, You want to assess what actually is the critical need for those families. You may also think about what other supports, whether it's financial or otherwise, that the family is currently receiving. Once you gather all that information, it really helps the government to determine the amount of support financially that this family will need. That's also important because there's also a total amount that the government budgets 
for families in general. So you want to make sure that you're able to help as many families as possible. So that's why there are a different number of eligibility factors that go into uh, that go into place to determining the disbursement of funds. Well, we have found that uh, families who have access to debit cards is what we call them here. It is easier versus a paper check, which has been used in the past. So you you hand out debit cards, and these are pre-allocated to different stores. How how does that set up work? So basically, in terms of the card that families use, the government doesn't in any way designate specific stores that the cards can be used at. So for instance, if the child needs clothing, if they need food, if they need school supplies, uh, the families can make these decisions themselves to provide those basic needs for children. I think what we have found that when families have access to a card where money has been uploaded on it, it's easier for them versus having a traditional check to where in the past I know governments have provided to families. So a a payment card, as we call them in Britain, and you call it a debit card, is good because it allows you actually to avoid the checking thing, which means you don't actually have to have a bank account, perhaps. You can actually go and spend in a store. I wonder, Augustine, is that a common practice around the world? It's been a common practice around the world, I would say, pre-pandemic. The pandemic sort of change a little bit. So now, nowadays, there there is a coexistence between different systems. Debit card still exists, as Robert w- was telling us. But of course, the, I would say that new programs that arise during the pandemic and afterwards are going more towards digital money, you know, like e-vouchers or uh, e-wallets and that type of things. Tell us what an e-voucher and an e-wallet is. What are those things? Nowadays, with the use of smartphones, and of course, depending on, on the region that the disbursement is needed, because sometimes uh, smartphones has not smartphones have not penetrated so deep in, in different countries and regions, but still there is the possibility of having digital money, you know, like by sending text, uh, a text message, because there is a connection between the the mobile provider uh, and the agency that sends the money. So people can just go with a text in, in their phones and show and redeem some benefits by having that text. You know, that's the digital money, how money flows. And e-wallets, uh, e-wallets, you know, by using your, your cell phone, you can have a, an app and, and an application, and then just the money goes directly through. And that the identity is something that you were mentioning so in that case, the phone number is some sort of identification method, you know, like there is a connection between the beneficiary and the phone number. Uh, of course, there are still challenges around that, but that's another option because as I was saying, during and after the pandemic, the, the issuing of, of debit card was a challenge. There, there couldn't be any uh, contact between people people still needed to have the, the money. So I would say there was creativity during those, those hard days and digitalization uh, was no, no exception. So in Washington, Robert, what, what happened during COVID? So what happened during COVID in Washington, D.C., we had basically what we called a paper-driven system. 
that mean that clients had to come in. We had to see them. They had to provide documentation. And because of the concern of exposure to COVID, we had to very quickly adapt and adjust and shift to more of an electronic system to where now we have an online and mobile application to where residents can apply for the program. They can upload their documents through the mobile application and through online platforms. And as a result of that, individuals have found that to be more seamless, easier, and faster um, because everyone has access to a mobile phone. And we already provided a debit card, so we would just work with our financial banking institutions to ensure that there are the security features in place that the individuals would receive the card and that based on the allotment of money each month that it would be uploaded to their card so that they, they then could, during the pandemic, again, get all of the necessities and the basic needs for the children that they serve. This happened in a rush, I imagine. I imagine it was quite stressful on everybody to make that transition from paper to digital. It was quite definitely a stressful time because just the work of child welfare, just to be quite honest, in social work, it is heavily what we call client-facing, and it's a lot of paper documentation. So this particular field did not know really what the innovations in technology could bring. So we had to work with the innovators in the field of technology to really speak with our agency and speak with our government on not only their innovations, but because we have a huge standard of confidentiality and things of that nature, we had to make sure that if we adopt these technologies, that we also have the security features that go along with it that protects the client information, et cetera. So we had to really do an extensive research and exploration of the different technologies that would meet the need of not only the families, but meet the security needs to protect their information. And once we got to that aspect, um, there had to be a number of ways to purchase this technology because there were extreme purchases. And actually, we were able to do that through a lot of the federal funding that was released through the federal government for different states um, because this was something that was affecting the entire United States, but it was also affecting the world. So the federal government had to allot a budget for that. And once we did, we then had to train our staff, which was a different aspect. So they could also get used to the technology. And then we had to do an entire communications campaign for residents to say, here's how you will u- utilize the online platform. Here's how you would utilize the mobile application. Here's how you upload, because many of the clients are different ages. Some are more comfortable with technology than others. So it required a lot of what we call hand-holding to get the city as, as in general used to the technology. Can you give me a sense of the time frame that all of this change happened in? Sure. Um, I would say that this change had to happen within the first 90 days during the, during the public health emergency. So you went from a paper-based system to a full digital system, and you did the procurement of it and the training of staff in it inside three months. Yes, and that's something, again, that's, that's really outside of the normal. I think because of the severity of a public health emergency, something that none of us have ever experienced, 
we had to utilize a number of different resources to get the get the job done. And what's the re- reaction of folk in Washington D.C.? I mean, it was a difficult time for everybody, but was the belief now that this was a positive step forward? In retrospect, it was a positive step forward, at least from what we hear from clients. Um, and I would also note that there are many that did not trust technology, to be quite honest. Um, there were many that actually preferred to have a live person to speak to, to help them through a process. So we had to work individually with those individuals who didn't want to utilize technology, who didn't want to use online platforms. So that was a big piece of what we had to do. But overwhelmingly, it, it became very positive once they saw how quickly they could then get access to services and get access to, again, those cards that they need to provide the services for children. Augustine, I wonder if I can just press you a little bit on identity and biometrics. So I know in countries like India, I think in Bangladesh, they are using biometrics. Half of Indians now have a biometric identity with the government, don't they? Do you see that as the the future around the world? Digitalization and the use of technology has been quite useful for, for different parts of the entire process of digital disbursement programs, you know. Robert was uh, telling us about the use of technology even before the, the, the payment. You know, he was talking about the, the use of technology and training how to change from paper to uh, digital presentations and, and applications and the like. So technology can be useful horizontally, you know, at different phases of the process. And identification is also where technology has been quite useful. In the case uh, of Bangladesh, the example that we found in our report is more about methodological uh, challenges or threats. You know, it's an example where government can use technology to run some models and identify potential areas that would be impacted by flooding. Of course, by knowing who lives there, that's something that has previously maybe uh, found, you know, like in a, in a previous process, they can see who is going to be impacted and then immediately transfer money on a forecast. And that's super useful. That's something that we found really interesting along our research. There is also an example on the other side, you know, with droughts. Because in in Niger, in Africa, there is an example also where by the use of satellite imagery and a specific index, you can find areas that are going to be exposed to droughts and you can send money to those victims in advance, you know, like months ago, so they can actually not enter in, in stress, you know, because of, I mean, they don't experience the drought so harsh. So basically, it's the use of technology to advance and to, to speed up the disbursement program. But also going back to your question of identification, there are cases where there is like a multiple combination of multiple sources, you know, like using some satellite imagery to find areas, like poor areas in some region, and then combining with the mobile operators that have clients in those regions, and through them, 
you can send text to clients and then ask those clients to connect with you. And then you can start all the, the screening process and identification. Sadly, we seem to be living in a world with ever more extreme weather events and even conflict and war that we have had in, as we record this program. And I suspect that we'll see disbursements and digital disbursements be something that becomes ever more, uh, sadly, more needed in those kind of weather events and, and hopefully not, but maybe more civil strife. What's the role of a company like Visa and the Resilient Cities Network in that? Do you see it as a useful uh, organizations to help in this increasing need to digitize these kind of payments? In my case, I see that by um, having this POV uh, written, you know, that's uh, one of the main contributions that they can do. And of course, the Resilient Cities Network is, is a network of cities that can bring knowledge, um, create a space for knowledge exchange between cities from all over the world. That's a huge contribution to this discussion. And of course, Visa, by being one of the biggest companies in the world dealing with credit cards, debit cards, moving money, I think there is also room for innovation and the synergy that can be created between cities like like dc and companies like visa is amazing i mean there is room for endless innovation i would say i know something of the grandparents caregivers program in dc could you tell us perhaps a little bit more about that and how that might relate to this sure so the grandparent caregivers program in washington dc is for grandparents great-grandparents um, we even have another program, it's called the Close Relative Caregiver Program, which is the same, it's just different eligibility criteria in terms of the relationship. So it can be an aunt, it can be an uncle, and it can be a sibling that because of the absence of the actual blood parent, there are family members that are willing to step up to say, hey, I will care for uh, my related nephew or niece or for my great-grandchild or my grandchild. And so when they do this, it doesn't require what we call the child to come into foster care, but it allows the government, which is Child and Family Service Agency, to use its prevention side of its division to say, hey, the government of the District of Columbia has a program that will provide a subsidy, which is money on a monthly basis to family members who step up to care for kids who are not in foster care. And as such, you can do this up until the child's age 18. It is based on how many children you are caring for in your household. Uh, we want to make sure that we do what we call a child protection registry and sex offender registry clearance just to make sure the children are safe in the care of caring adults. And so we provide a number of services, support groups, um, educational workshops, different enrichment programs and convenings for children and families. And then again, the subsidy, which is the monthly allotment of, of financial dollars that the family receives on a monthly basis. And this is something that is locally funded through what we call our local government of Washington, D.C., and not the federal government. And when I thought about your question when you mentioned 
you know, visa would be helpful in these instances, whether it's countries or states or or areas where there's possibly, you know, where there could be, like you say, war currently or natural disasters. Um, I would say the challenge would be is if those areas do not have the infrastructure to support such innovation and technology, where I think the idea would be great and seamless and easy for children and families. Uh, the difficulty is if those areas lack the infrastructure needed that the technology could support. But I do think it would be helpful. I think we've almost gone from the oldest form of identity, like your family who recognize you and uh, an extended family who might care for you, all the way through to a biometric technological idea as, as a way of also authenticating who you are. The extent is enormous, isn't it? So from non-digital tech all the way to the leading edge of digital tech, actually all of these have legitimate roles to play. It seems that's what we're actually saying in, in reality, that we need all of the above. Is that a fair summary, do you think, of the story? I think it is a, a, fair, um, a fair assessment and an account of the story. And one of the interesting things that we're seeing is a shift, I would say, in terms of, from our perspective in, in relatives that are stepping forward, they're younger versus 10 years ago, they were older. You had grandparents. And so it's the grandparents that primarily would be more in opposition to technology because they don't understand it. They didn't grow up in the digital age, as we say. And younger um, aged caregivers are more accepting and willing, and they actually want the innovation. They want to be able to do things digitally because Again, they have a mobile phone, they have access to it 24 hours a day. And so it's something that they uh, readily, um, definitely access um, as they need to. Fantastic. Augustine, do you agree that it's a mixture of both human and tech? Yes, yes, of course. I would say that it's it's a mix. So my take and, and our take in, in the work that we did is that Digitalization comes to uh, improve the programs that are already in place. I mean, if the program is good, the digitalization is going to make it better. But I mean, if something is not providing the result uh, because of, of the of the objectives, because of something that is is wrong from inside, you know, digitalization is not going to change that. So, technology and digital tools are going to make more efficient and improve whatever is happening and make it better. So that's one of the thoughts that I have. And also building on what Robert was saying in terms of infrastructure, infrastructure, you know, like not only columns and, and posts for telephone, but uh, actual computer infrastructure, apps and, and coding and the like. It's really important that cities and government can start creating that infrastructure as soon as possible not waiting for another emergency to come. There are examples of cities and, and countries that were able to move faster in the face of the pandemic because they already had built knowledge, capacity, and infrastructure before. For instance, in the Dominican Republic, because of all the hurricanes they have been uh, hit uh, by, they built a system for disbursement. And in the face of COVID, they could just expand whatever they had. 
I mean, they could increase the amount of money, but just changing a number in, in a computer. And also they could expand to new customers using e-wallets and, and e-vouchers and digital money. I mean, they had also uh, the debit cards, but because of the restrictions, they went through a, a horizontal expansion by introducing digital money. But again, it is really important to, to create that infrastructure as soon as possible. And also the connections, because th that's something important, the partnerships with NGOs, with the, with the private sector, because all of them can help at some part of the process. Some NGOs are more suitable for the connection with the beneficiary, you know, because of trust. You know, communities might find trustful uh, an NGO like the Red Cross or, or whatever, whoever that is working in the, in the region, and then you can have that part covered with the partnership. And then you can have a partnership with the mobile operators to move the money through phones. And there is a, this ecosystem that is really useful to render good results and fast. Thank you very much. I think what you're saying really is there needs to be trust between technology providers, payment providers, government officials, uh, a whole ecosystem of NGOs. Actually, it's useful to be part of something like the Resilient Cities Network. It's useful to partner with people and organizations like Visa, because actually there's so many different parts of this puzzle that we all need to work together. And it's probably something that COVID accelerated change. So they, I've heard it said 10 years of change happened in a matter of months. In Washington's case, three months, amazing story. And uh, it's actually accelerated the pace of change. And we need to get ahead of it, ready for the next one, rather than waiting for it to happen. Thank you ever so much to Robert and Augustine for joining. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Urban Exchange and look forward to seeing you on the next one. Thanks very much. Every year, more than a million people read Smart Cities World and 40,000 members gain access to special reports and content. Members include officials from more than 2,000 cities with new members signing up every single week. Our Urban Exchange podcast takes us around the world to meet people working on the front line. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a thing. We'll catch you next time.